Welcome, everybody. Good to see you. My name is Tim Harris. I'm pastor here at Woodburn Baptist Church. That is where you are, and uh, I'm really glad that you're here. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you're in the uh, cafe this morning or if you're joining us by audio or video podcast, thank you. Uh, it means a lot to us. Matt Betts, you're the man. All of you in cafe, we love you so much. You're so much a part of us, and we thank you for uh, everything you do to make Sunday mornings great. Now, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 10, still in the message series entitled Loaded Words. Turns out that a lot of the words that we use in church, words that we're used to, and words that for us mean one thing, when we get out into the world and we start using these words with non-believers or non-church folks, they don't always understand what we're talking about. Or, Or worse, they hear the words that we use, but they attach different meanings to them. So sometimes we think we're communicating and, and, and indeed, we're not. Before we do anything else, though, I, I want to share a, a, a picture with you uh, that I saw this week. Did anybody else see this? Y'all know what this is? This is Creek Baptism. This is the creek down, same creek we went to a couple of weeks ago. This is down in the Franklin Community Park. Uh, this is Franklin Community Church baptizing. All right, two weeks ago, this is their baptism service. But you need to understand... This is the long line of people standing in line to be baptized. Pastor Eric is approximately right here, uh, probably about just his forehead sticking out of the water (laughs) right there. Yeah, there were like 32 people baptized on a single day at Franklin Community Church. Isn't that awesome? This is why we plant churches. This is why we plant churches. 32 people on a single day who are new believers who are standing in line to be baptized. This is why we plant churches. And this is why we preach the message of salvation to the world. It it, it looks like this. It, It looks like this, and this is why we do it. But as I said, that word salvation is one of those loaded words. The word saved may be one of the most loaded words of all. Uh, Maybe part of it is is, is my experience as a pastor. But when I walk into the barber shop, typically somebody will say, preacher. They always say, preacher. They say it really loud. And at first I thought, man, they're really happy to see me. But then then I realized they're actually announcing in the barber shop, preacher, preacher. And, and, And so, yeah. You know, quit laughing about any time now. Uh, they're spreading the word preacher. Why are they doing that? Yeah, so nobody tells any bad stories. Nobody cusses, you know. Uh, I just thought I had the, you know, the, the, just the happiest barbershop in, in the whole world. Preacher, they'll say, and I'll walk in, and then somebody will say, Preacher, anybody get saved lately? Anybody get saved lately? Uh, did you save anybody on Sunday? Yeah, they say that, you know, they think that's so funny. Ha <laughs> ha, did you save Anybody on Sunday, when they say it, I I don't really know how to interpret what they're asking me. I I really don't think they want to celebrate necessarily what God is doing at at our church. I I think it has something to do with connecting with the work they feel like I do. But you all, of all people, know I don't save people. So the answer is always no. I, I didn't save anybody. When I announced to a dear friend that I was about to pursue ministry years ago, the woman said, Tim, don't you know the whole world don't want to be saved? You understand? You understand how people use and hear that word? They have this vague knowledge that we preach a message of salvation and that people get saved with us. But at the same time, it's a word that you and I have to recognize most people really don't understand. 
And if people who don't know Christ and don't understand what salvation is, if they heard us celebrating this picture, they would just think that we're happy to have, you know, more people in our church, like, like, like we're just, you know, trying to build something for ourselves. And you know that's not it at all. It has nothing to do with us. It's not about uh, our trying to make more people like us. The world would say trying to indoctrinate more hypocrites like us. That's what the world would say. But, but this isn't it at all. I mean, if we just went through the line, if we started again, Pastor Eric, he's, he's about this tall. He's probably right, right about here in the picture. Um, I mean, y'all know that Eric Walker... W- w- was an addict. He was on drugs and, and alcohol. He was in jail. I mean, he was one of those guys for whom Christ has brought such an incredible life change. Incredible life change. I mean, when he was called to come into the pastorate and start preaching, understand he was a maintenance supervisor at a factory in Franklin. I mean, he came out from behind a mop bucket to stand behind a pulpit and preach the gospel. It's an incredible life change. I mean, I mean the gospel rewrote the story of this man's life. I mean, this is what salvation is. And, and on through here, person by person, story by story, we're talking about lives changed. I mean, lives changed for, for the better. Salvation is about Christ putting people's lives back together. It's about people who weren't able to, to, to love neighbors as much as they love themselves, and, and they finally learned to love. It's about marriages being put back together. It's about people being set free from things that enslaved them for years and years and years. It's about children having a new daddy. It's about children having a new mama. Do you understand? It's about people being set free from the guilt and the shame and the struggles that they've had for years and years and years. There is no power anywhere on earth that gives that. Only the power of Jesus. This is the gospel. If anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Old things are passed away. There is no other way in all of the world to separate yourself from your past other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we, we preach the gospel because the gospel is good news. It's good news, and it is the good news that every human soul longs to hear. This isn't about us. Seeing people get saved, that's not about us. It's not about growing our church. It's not about just trying to make our club bigger. It's about giving people a gift. It's about people having their lives changed for good for all eternity. The the, the word saved, it's one of the greatest words of all, but one of the most loaded words, because for all that it means to us, it doesn't necessarily mean that when you ask somebody on the street, are you saved? So come back with me. Let's talk about what it means to be saved. Romans chapter 10 Verse 9. This language is not language we invented. It's biblical language. The name Jesus itself means the Lord saves. I mean, Jesus himself, his name means Savior, one who saves. And this language of being saved, we find through Scripture. We didn't invent it, but we have in some ways made it cheap by misusing it, by misapplying it. Let's try to recover the important beauty of this word. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be, say the word, saved. 
For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. And it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him, in Jesus, will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What's it feel like to be saved? What's it, what's it like to be saved? I think the closest thing I could compare it to would be a, a story told by an old German fighter pilot named Otto Fries, who, who way back in World War II was in a firefight at night in his, in his fighter plane. Otto was shot. His, his, his airplane took, took, took fire, and his left engine was blown out, and immediately his aircraft burst into flames. So Otto is now alone, a pilot in a plane that is now in a nosedive going down in flames. Otto panicked. In his own words, he says that his brain didn't function. He couldn't think. He was so, so afraid and realizing how little time he had left. He remembered that he was in an, an ejector seat, and they were pretty new back in those days, an ejector seat. And he was trained to reach under the seat and, and, and grab the lever to, to eject out of the plane. It's, it's in a nosedive, but, but, but he couldn't think, and, and he was feeling for the lever. He couldn't find the lever. It was dark, so he reached for a flashlight. He found a flashlight, and then he found the lever, and then he yanked the lever. Now, the thing is, in training, you're always trained that when you pull the ejector level, the first thing you must do before you pull the lever is put your head back, because when you fly out of this plane, it'll tear your head off if, if you don't have your head back in, in position. Otto didn't do that, so he says that when he pulled the lever and he was launched from that plane, he felt every muscle in his neck tear nearly tore his head off, but he survived. And now he's just tumbling through the air in a free fall in the middle of the night, head over heels over and over and over. And then he realizes he's still strapped in his seat. He's, he's now plunging through the sky, heading toward the ground, strapped into an airplane seat. He realizes he's, he's got to get free of the seat. And so he reaches for the seat belt latch and he unlatches himself. The seat falls away and now he's just falling through the air. He has a parachute, but he knows that there's a certain window of opportunity to raise the chute, and he doesn't know exactly where he is. He doesn't know how close to the ground he is. And so he stops and thinks, and he can feel moisture around him. He can feel himself going through clouds, so he estimates that he's about 1,200 feet from the ground. He pulls the ripcord, and the parachute opens. And suddenly what was a free fall is, is now just a gentle descent. He's now slowly ascending to the ground and he takes a deep breath. And, and then he lands on the ground and his knees buckle and he falls face down into a cow pasture. <laughs> he opens his eyes and right in front of his face is a cow pile fresh steaming about this big, but about 12 inches from his nose. And he said to himself, I am the luckiest man in the whole world. It's kind of like that. It's, 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 it's like that, especially when you realize that your life was like a plane going down in flames. Your life is a plane going down in flames. Now, it doesn't always seem that way. But for some people, it does. 
But, but for many people, it doesn't. I, I mean, the fact of the matter is your life truly is a plane going down in flames. But, but for a long time, you can feel like you're flying high. You can feel like you're sailing above it all. For, for the longest time in your life, you won't necessarily realize that, that your life is going to end in disaster. But it does. It, it always does. Your life is a plane going down in, in, in flames. It's very hard to recognize. I talked about this two weeks ago, the idea that it's not just this life that we must be concerned with. You weren't just created for 70 years on this earth. You were created for eternity. You have eternity in your heart. And the fact of the matter is when you close your eyes on this side, you will open your eyes on the other side. You will open your eyes into eternity. So it's not just this present life that must concern you. It is indeed the life to come. And you must make some decision regarding where you will spend the life after this life. But one way or the other, you have to know that this life is a plane going down in flames. It doesn't always seem that way, but, but sometimes you know it is. It may have to do with the way the darkness just seems to sort of always be around the edges of everything. Or maybe it's in the way that no matter how much you earn or how much you buy or what you accomplish or achieve in this life, it's never enough. Have you never realized that it's never enough? You never have enough friends. And even sometimes with the friends you have, you're never completely secure that they care about you, that they love you. Sometimes you're still so afraid that people really don't care about you. Or if they knew what you were really like, they'd run from you. Maybe it's in the simple way that you're just so bored with everything, bored, that no matter what you experience, no matter what you do, somehow in the pit of your stomach is still this incredible sense of emptiness, boredom. Nothing in this world seems to satisfy or stimulate you enough. Maybe it's in the way that when everything gets quiet and you become alone with your own thoughts... You really don't like the person that you are. Maybe that's why you have to have noise all the time. Or maybe it's why you just like to keep the party going all the time. You really can't stand to be alone with that person who lives in your skin. Maybe it has something to do with the fact that no matter how many times you find somebody, you're not very good at relationships. You're not really good at marriage. Some, somehow, some way, you really have never been able to love people. Or let people love you. I'm just saying that there's this brokenness in everything that has to do with this present life. And your life is a plane that's going down in flames. This is what you have to recognize. This is what deep down you must know. So when we talk about being saved, then we realize that you're saved from something. It's not just this, you know, really nice thing that Jesus does that becomes like just licking the frosting off of the cake of your life. This is not what we're talking about. Salvation is real because the danger that you're in, it's real. Because the reality of your life heading for disaster, that's real. And salvation is real. You're being snatched from something that's genuinely going to destroy you. You're being separated from something that truly you're not able to shake off on your own. You're being delivered from a trap, delivered from a, a life, a death that honestly you have no ability to deliver yourself from. Salvation is real and necessary. Necessary. It always involves this before and after. 
in our lives, especially in our media, TV shows are all about before and after these days, aren't they? I mean, if it's a makeover show, that's the whole fun of it. You see this, you know, this girl coming out at the beginning of the show, and it's like, you know, I mean, you know, make her over, please, make her over, fast forward, make her over. And then afterwards, she comes walking out. It's, it's like a brand new person. It's like, whoa, whoa, do mama, do mama next. And, you know, but before and after, I, I mean, we, we, we love this transformation. You know, we don't have cable at home, so on vacation we watch HGTV. It's all about transformation, isn't it? I mean, they walk into a house that looks like yours, and then they make it over, you know? It's like, move that bus, and they move the bus. It's like, whoa. How is that even the same house? I mean, we love transformation. And salvation is always about transformation. It always has to do with the story you can tell about before and the story you can tell after. There's before and there's after. And what happens in between is the action of Jesus, the intervention of Jesus. Jesus does something. He's the only one that can cut the line between before and after in your life. So how does that happen? Romans chapter 10, verse 9. This is the essential verse. We try to make it more complicated. What are you going to add or what are you going to take away from this verse right here? If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Sounds simple. It is simple. That doesn't make it easy, but it's simple. It has to do with Jesus. I mean, verse 9, there's no way around it. It has to do with Jesus. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord, Jesus Jesus is not some abstract spiritual principle. He's a person. He's a man who lived on earth. This isn't just uh, some sort of mythological religion. This is history now. Jesus lived. We document his existence. He, he lived. But more than that, in, in his living, he revealed to us something about God. This is what you have to understand. He was no ordinary man. He was God in the flesh. And that's something of what it means when it says you must come to the point where you openly declare, you confess, you agree, you acknowledge, but not just some sort of empty sort of head knowledge. You're willing now to commit your life on the fact that he wasn't just an ordinary man, that this Jesus who lived and died on the cross all of those years ago, he was Lord. Which is the same way of saying this man was God, God in the flesh. Jesus is not just another good teacher who lived, not just someone that we, that we see on the flannel graph in Sunday school at church. Jesus is God. And there is an importance to acknowledging that, not just saying it with your head in the same way that George Washington, you believe, was the father of our, our country. No, this is something much deeper than that. This is a life-changing sort of acknowledgement. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and, and believe, it's not just openly declaring in the way that you go to church. It's something must be taking place inside your heart. There's a shift that happens when you believe something. And what is it that you must believe? Really not a whole lot. 
And I know that some of you will get troubled when I say this to you, but you don't have to believe a whole lot to become a Christian. You, you really don't. We like to add to it. We like to add a whole lot to it. But very, very simply, the only thing you have to believe in order to be saved is what? That, that he rose again. You have to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Everything comes down to the resurrection. You must believe in the resurrection of Jesus, that he died, but that he rose again. You have to believe that. So honestly, when you're talking with people outside, outside the church walls, I say, I don't know if I could be a Christian because I believe in evolution. You, would you just please tell them they can believe in evolution if they want to. What they must believe is the resurrection. There's no line drawn about whether you believe in creation or evolution. That's somewhere down the line. We're not talking about what saves a person here. You understand? There's only one thing you have to believe in. That is God raised him from the dead. That's it. Well, I don't know if I could be a Christian because I've got homosexual friends. I got homosexual friends too. That's beside the point. Salvation has to do with believing that God raised Jesus from the dead. It is the resurrection that, that draws the line of what must be believed in order to be a Christian. It's the resurrection. Now, whatever else that the Lord wants to do in our hearts or teach us or show us, that's on the other side of our salvation. We're talking about getting snatched out of the plane going down in flames. You simply must believe that God raised him from the dead. You have to believe in Easter. You with me? If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What makes the resurrection so important? Of all of the things that we can read in the Bible and all of the things that we can teach and, and hold as important, what makes the resurrection the dividing line? Well, the resurrection is, is, is the greatest display of God's power, we could say, that, that, that you can possibly imagine. It is, it is the victory over death. Paul calls death the very last enemy. Have you never stood at the funeral home? Have you, have you ever been at the hospital bed and watched a loved one die? Have you ever lost someone and then spent the whole rest of your life walking around longing for, the, for, for a reunion with them? I mean, death is, is, is the incredible, incredible misery of human life. We live our whole lives knowing that it's simply a walk to the grave. This is why you color your hair. This is why you have colonoscopies. This is why you eat bran flakes. Is it because they taste better than frosted flakes? No. It's because somehow deep down inside you know that you're getting older every day. And older every day just means one step closer to the grave. And that is simply what takes all of the joy out of our lives, knowing that it all ends at the grave. But if I really believed it all ended at the grave, then what would even make life worth living? Life would be this horrible joke. If everything just ended in a six-foot hole behind J.C. Kirby's funeral home, I mean, then, then how is life even worth living? It's, a, it's an absurdity. It's a horrible, horrible prank. I mean, if, if death was just the final word, if, if death was the period at the end of everything else of our lives, then, then what is life for? 
It's the resurrection of Jesus that shows us, that, that, that makes us know that there's something on the other side of the grave, that the grave is not the end. And if the grave is not the end, then that tells me that I've got eternity to prepare for. It means that if I live 60, 70 years on this earth, that's just a drop in the bucket. I mean, that's nothing compared to living for eternity. That makes this present life sort of small and insignificant, but it makes eternity very, very important. You see, the resurrection lets me know that death is not the end. And it lets me know that Jesus is who he said he was. I mean, Jesus said that the only sign you'd ever get for who's, who he was and the authority that he had was the sign of Jonah. That's kind of a confusing way to say what he was saying, but he was talking to people who knew the Old Testament very well. And what was it about Jonah? He went into the belly of the fish, and he stayed there three days, and then he came out. So when Jesus said the only sign you'll get will be the sign of Jonah, what was he talking about? Three days in the grave, and then he comes out. God raised him from the dead. It's, 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 it's God's confirmation, God's verification of who Jesus is. He is the divine son. He is the one who holds the keys to death and the grave. He is the one who holds the keys to your life and your salvation. I mean, it all comes down to the resurrection. We can argue about nearly everything else. Nearly everything else is, is arguable. I could be wrong. I could be right. But I'm telling you, you better be right about the resurrection. It's the one thing that we draw the line on. So if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord. Now, again, to say that, it, it, something shifts in your heart. To, to say he's the Lord means that you now recognize that he's above everything, including you. So it's not just as easy as just saying magic words. Okay, Jesus is Lord. Like those are magic words, like reading off a fortune cookie. No, no. It's a declaration of a new direction of your life where, where you recognize that he has the authority and the right to govern you. That means that you are, you are sacrificing your freedom to say no to him. And that's why I say it's, it's simple but not easy because this is the one thing that a whole lot of you simply will not do. I know you're church people, but church people are sinners too. And church people aren't necessarily Christians just because they're in church, you know? I mean, coming to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than like going to Pizza Hut makes you a pizza. Something shifts inside your heart. And when you declare that Jesus is your Lord, that's simply saying that from this point on, he's Lord over you. That, that you have given up your right, your freedom to say no to him. That from this point on, you're going to live your life in such a way where you do the things that he would do. And you say the things that he would say. And your life is no longer your own. I mean, your life is now his life. He, he's, he's governing you. He's your master. He's Lord. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I mean, in that instant, you're saved. You ain't from the nosedive of your life. He, he saves you. And you need to be saved. So how do you get saved? As the scripture tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Everyone is the same in this respect. They all have the same Lord who generously gives to all who call on him. 
So, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call on him. Just call. It's not a magic prayer. It's not like I can give you like a a sinner's prayer and you pray this prayer, you say these words, and then it happens. It's just, you just call on him. That calling, of course, involves this important recognition that you can't save yourself. You, You can't do this yourself. Paul, of course, is writing the book of Romans, and he's writing to religious people. He's writing to people who've all already been saved, and he's trying to help them understand what's happened to them. He's trying to help them put into words this unspeakable uh, transformation that we call salvation. See, a lot of them were Jews who believed that simply by following the law, they could be right with God. They're half right there. It is very, very important to be right with God, but it's wrong to think that you're going to be right with God by just keeping rules. And though I don't think very many of you are, 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 are Jewish in, in your identity, you're Jewish in your thinking because a lot of people still think that they're going to be right with God just by being especially good people. And some of you are especially good people. Some of you aren't. But some of you are especially good people. Especially good people are still sinners. This is what you have to understand. That it is important to be right with God, but you're never going to be right with God by impressing him with good deeds. You'll you'll never be that good. Scripture says that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. It's his standard you're measured by, not your own, not your neighbor's. You can't be as holy and perfect as he is. You, You can't save yourself. So if your life is this plane going down in flames and you have to understand that that you have to trust Christ, he becomes like your parachute. There's another guy ejected from a plane. This one was back around the year 2000. It was a Philippine Airlines with 270-something passengers and 13 crew members and this one really dim-witted hijacker. You know, they're not all criminal masterminds, and this particular criminal was not a mastermind. He had a plan, a, a carefully orchestrated plan. And he must have watched like James Bond movies because everything he did was kind of, oh, ah. He had a gun and a grenade, and he, and, and he, and he busted into the cockpit, you know, and, and he took over, and he robbed the crew, and all the ladies are screaming, and this guy thinks he's so smooth. He goes down through with a bag. He gets everybody's belongings. And again, he's really smooth. He's, he's got the outfit on. And then after he's robbed all the passengers and all the crew, he goes over to the, to the hatch, and he throws the hatch open. He's going to jump out, y'all. He's got a parachute on his back. He puts on a pair of, like, kids' swim goggles, like he's really awesome. And then he turns around one more time, and he gets, like, this really cocky wave, like, ha-ha! And then he just jumps out. Thing is, y'all, they find his dead body southeast of Manila the next day because he had a homemade parachute. He made it at home. They found his dead body in mud, all tangled up in like ropes and bed sheets. True story. Okay, just, you know, note to self, a parachute is something you do not make at home. (laughs) And salvation is something you are never, ever going to achieve on your own. If Christ is your parachute, this isn't something you're going to do without him. 
You have to be willing to evacuate the nosedive of your life, put your trust completely in Christ who alone can save you. Old folks used to talk about it in terms of conversion. They talk about getting converted. It's, it's, it's changed. For them, the life change was real. When salvation is real, my friends, there is a real change. Some of us claim to be Christians. Some of us say that, that we've experienced this new life in Christ, but, but there is no before and after. You're the same person. You've got the same mouth. You've got the same racist ideas. You've got the same hate in your heart. You've got the same selfishness. You really need to examine whatever it is you consider your salvation experience if there is no new creation on the other side of meeting Jesus. So if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you called on him? Have you believed in him? Has he saved you? If he's not, I'm inviting you today. Believe. Call on him. Be saved. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we think of ourselves as all being different, but we are all in the same boat. We are all in the same plane going down in flames. We were born into it. God, we like to think in many ways that, that, that we ourselves would be the exception to the rule that somehow we're better or, or somehow you'll smile on us because we treat people right. But Lord, that is not, that is not what the gospel tells us. And the gospel is good news. Lord, I pray that you would open the hearts, Holy Spirit, open the hearts of people in this room who are on the wrong side of this thing, Lord. Open the hearts of people who have yet to surrender to you as Lord of their lives. Open the mouths of people who simply refuse to confess that you are Lord. Open the proud hearts of people who have yet to surrender to the belief that you are the risen Lord and Savior. Jesus, I know that there are people in this room today trapped in a life that is going down in flames. I pray that before it is too late, I pray that before the sun goes down today, I pray that before I say amen, they will call upon your name, O oh Jesus. Accept your offer of rescue. Accept your offer of forgiveness. Surrender to your authority to command their lives. Pray that they would call upon your name and be saved. We pray these things in the name of the only one powerful to save, the name of Jesus. Amen.